My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 131, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Mark 5 through 8, Psalm 21 and 23. Mark 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?' In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened in the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large number gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, "'My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live.' So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." 
While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's the wisdom they have been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and a holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do we have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at their oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, "'Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid.'" Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over the land at Gennesaret and anchored there, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews Do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about your hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. 
Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that you might have been used to help their father or mother in is Korriban, that is, devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her, her daughter. First, let the child eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the child's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the child's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where is this remote place? Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. 
The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Go behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Psalm 21. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Links of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him undenying blessing and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. 
Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy the descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, so we're reading the gospel according to Mark. The four gospels in the New Testament are books about the life of Jesus. Yet, Mark doesn't seem to be telling a random collection of Jesus' activities, as Dr. Mackey states. Mark seems to be authoring the narrative to address important questions around how Jesus is the Messiah, who he is, a royal figure, the Son of God, the one that Israel in the Old Testament was expecting and hoping would come and conquer their enemies, perhaps the Romans in this case, and that the Messiah would be the new king and rule. But we've seen, uh, you probably felt it, you're like, wait, we're jumping around these different stories, what's going on? But we know that's not what Jesus did. He's not going to come and be the Messiah in the way that they expect, or many of them are saying that they expect. He let the Romans kill him at the request of the chief Israelite priests and teachers and Pharisees. So Mark wants to address this question in this book. Why did this happen? And how can Jesus be the Messiah when he didn't come as the Israelites expected? So first, as we've read chapters 1 through 8, we learned more about who Jesus is. Then in chapters 11 through 16, we will learn more about how Jesus becomes the Messiah. But at the end of chapter 8 through, we're going to read through chapter 10 tomorrow, both of these questions are being answered both who he is and how he is becoming the Messiah. We're starting to see that with clarity and start to unfold. This book has similarities to the gospel according to Matthew, but where Matthew focuses on the Jewish audience to tell the story of Jesus, Mark seems to be drawing from his time with Paul, but particularly Peter, who was invited the the Roman Gentiles to know Jesus in much of his ministry. And Mark in this book seems to be talking to the Romans. We unpacked some of that yesterday, and today we also see Mark telling the story in a fast-paced, Western style, more direct, with connections to their cultural interests around education, healthcare, and entertainment. Remember, we learned that Jesus was teaching, he was healing, and he amazed people with his miracles. So again, I made that marketing connection. He understood the target audience, and he was really connecting to their cultural interests and the way that they understand stories. Yet, Jesus' followers are confused and seem to view or at least desire the word Messiah to be and mean victorious military king, particularly Peter in this story. He wants to see the Messiah as the one who defeats and rules through force and might. Think back to our discussion on culture, where sports and entertainment are among the four pillars of Hellenistic culture. Even our culture 
saving, uh, you know, money and winning things are done through strength, intelligence, and power. This way of thinking also resonates with their story of rescue and conquering the enemy with God at the center of the story. God did escalate to force and in terms of extracting his people from the enslavement in Egypt, and God's people were called to force the adversarial groups who were in the center of the world and the place God was giving his people, the promised land. Yet here, Jesus is and will be more so tomorrow revealed as a Messiah who will serve and sacrifice to save. So this is a different narrative than they're used to. The ruling and bringing back of order is done through acts of restoration and redemption. The rescue mission made known and demonstrated through the heart's acts of service, yielding power to save. Jesus was serving God by serving the Gentiles, Romans, women, and others, offering healing, hope, teaching of the kingdom with no end, the story, the story that was unfolding for them in their lives and is still unfolding for us today. Yet Jesus's followers still didn't understand. I think this message is still confusing in our cultural norms today. I think it's common to expect someone who can save as someone with power to do so. And then I think we imagine they take by force the thing they want because they can. And it's, in air quotes, good or a righteous cause. But the thing is, God chose to create mankind in his image by giving them a portion of his power and authority to be agents, not owners, but representative leaders for him in this world. God gave power and God yielded his son to yield his life for us. This models the type of love and way God wants to use us and as agents and giving up our portion of power that he gave us back to him for his influence in his world to be willing to yield to and for him and others towards the purpose of restoration, redemption, putting God on display in prodigal acts of love and generosity, interceding for even the prideful and rebellious in prayer, being present and available to model through our own obedience and our own repentive hearts, atonement through Jesus and the pursuit of following God's heart, his order, his ways, being willing to answer questions and to remind and help others navigate to Jesus for atonement. Because we're a part of his story. It's not that he needs us to accomplish his story. He's called us into it. I know sometimes it might feel like we live in a culture of civil turmoil. I can speak from my experience in the United States and maybe We think this civil political tension is new or unattainable, but the Gospel of Mark reminds me of the Jewish political groups of that time in Jesus' day. Dave Barnhart, a Methodist home church builder, wrote a brief description of each Jewish political group in Jesus' day. It it may be oversimplified, but the, the succinctness of it, I think, really helps to bring clarity and connection. So also remember the leaders of these groups, particularly the Pharisees, are the ones that called for Jesus's death from the Romans, who were the ones that obviously implemented it. So the four groups, the Zealots, we talked about this, but they believed in the overthrow of the Roman Empire. They would not tolerate pagan idols and practices in their land, and God would bring about the kingdom with their help. So they thought that, you know, violence and fight and that God needed them to violently overthrow all the evil in the land. The Asenis believed in withdrawing from the corrupt temple systems and empire. They would live holy lives in an alternative world until God brought about the kingdom without their help. 
The Pharisees believed in this radical personal holiness, which on the surface sounds transformational and wonderful, but it was a particularly scary form of self-righteousness in a lot of ways. I think of the elder brother and the prodigal parable in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. They believed in internalizing their religious laws and that God would give punishment and reward in the afterlife. So it was kind of more of like this earning The Sadducees believed in the establishment, so the Roman Empire, and they made peace with the way the Romans did things and focused on their own religious rituals or traditions. They believed divine punishment and reward happened in this life. That's a lot to unpack, and I like to remind myself that my identity and purpose in this story are given by God. I compare it to a branding concept called brand architecture, specifically a branded house structure where God's name is the name of the kingdom and all other sub-brands have more to do with the efficacy of communicating and engaging with a specific audience. So these sub-brands must be connected to the core brand, God's name, the house brand, or they become diluted and dysfunctional, having less meaning and impact. I see all other sub-brands and all other identity markers, according to consumer behavior anyway, some of the most influential Identity markers humans tend to use are religion, ethnicity, and gender. But more normative shaping identifying markers can be political groups, sports teams, friends groups, all sorts of things. And again, we keep these in mind. They're not inherently bad on their own, but it's a problem when the order and rank of influence becomes the house brand and not a sub-brand. And we don't think of God's name and remember his story and call on God's word and the Holy Spirit in order to interpret and help us to navigate all these other more cultural identifying markers. They create a lens And we want the lens to be the house brand with which we see everything else and that we don't let the sub-brands overshadow God's name, God's word, and the Holy Spirit's work in our life. It can be easy to get lost or prioritize sub-brands, but this we must guard our hearts against. We have to remember and have a soft heart to listen to him. In this story, Jesus has been saying to stay quiet about who he is and what he's been doing. And then he takes his disciples away to talk to them about three times, I think. And he wants to know who they think he is. They aren't really sure. There's confusion and some fear. But Jesus says what he is going to do and how Jesus came not to be served, but to be a servant and that he's calling for us to be this way too. Tomorrow, more on how Jesus explains how he will become a crucified king, and that's what makes him the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.